Well, good morning again, everyone. We are uh, in a sermon series looking together uh, at the Minor Prophets. We have been for a few weeks since Easter. Uh, The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and we call them minor because they are shorter uh, than the other prophetic writings in the Old Testament. But do not let the word um, minor fool you into thinking that they are somehow lightweight. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the Minor Prophets are some of the most potent moral forces that have ever been unleashed in this world. Their moral vision is fierce, and it is singular. And the prophet that we're going to talk about this morning, Amos, is perhaps the preeminent example of that. So I'm going to read from uh, Amos 5, parts of Amos 5, and then I'm going to read the last paragraph, the conclusion of Amos from chapter 9. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where those verses are printed, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Amos 5 and Amos 9. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, And cast down righteousness to the earth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, And turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. 
Father, as always, we ask that you would use this word that we have read and heard together to lead us eventually, truly, faithfully to the word who bears our flesh, who is seated right by you now, praying for people like us. Show us his grace and help us to be, as we have already heard from your son's brother James, help us to be people who not only hear but do. Help us to be people who don't look in the mirror and walk away and forget. Help us to remember. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, like most of you, uh, I'm sure I do not remember much about being in kindergarten. That uh, entire year blurs together with a lot of other years on the front end of my school years. But something happened on the first day of kindergarten for me um, that I have never forgotten. It happened while we were all arriving at school with our parents, you know, holding our hands and assuring us that things were going to be okay. There was nothing to be worried about. Things were going to be fun. And uh, they were, you know, saying all the things that parents say and that kids need to hear uh, at the beginning of that long journey that's going to gobble up a huge chunk of our lives. And we had all convened in the hallway that morning, I guess, to meet each other and to meet our teachers. And there was one kid there that morning whose name was Jason. Now, I remember Jason's last name, but I'm not going to say it because these things are recorded. Jason was profoundly unhappy that morning. And we all knew it because he was crying pretty hard. Now, I do not begrudge a kid that on his or her first day of school. I mean, I don't know exactly why Jason was crying, but it's not hard for me to guess. He's in an unfamiliar place, surrounded by unfamiliar people. And the one constant in his life, the one familiar thing in his life, his parents are walking away, helping, telling him that they're leaving, leaving him to fend for himself. So Jason was crying loud. And he was crying for a long time. Now, I'm guessing that his mom and his dad tried to get him to stop. Probably some of the other kids tried to get him to stop. I don't really remember exactly how it all went down, but I do remember what finally did get him to stop. One of the teachers took him by his hand and led him over to another kid in our kindergarten class named Dave, or Davey, as we called him back then. Dave was the only other kid that I knew uh, in that kindergarten class that morning. Our older brothers were friends, and so we had hung out. We had played a bunch together before that first day, so I was glad to have somebody I knew on the first day of kindergarten. And Dave uh, also happened to be the shortest kid in the kindergarten class. So the teacher took Jason by the hand and led him over to Dave and had them stand as tall as they could back to back. And she put her hand over their heads and she looked at Jason and she said, Look, Jason, you're taller than Davy. You're a big boy. And that's what made Jason stop crying. So before we had ever sung our ABCs, before we had ever counted apples on a coloring page, before we had ever learned to line up quietly to go to the bathroom, the kindergarten class of 1977 had learned a lesson. 
before we ever walked into the classroom that morning, we had learned a cruel and unfortunate lesson. Sometimes you can use those less powerful than you to your advantage. If you can get one over on the person who can't really stand up for themselves, sometimes you can score points in your favor. Now I know that my teacher did not set out to teach that lesson. She was just desperate to get Jason to stop crying and she saw Davy and knew maybe this could work. It's easy for me to think of all of the careless decisions like that I have made in my life. I have made many of them. But even now, it's one of only a handful of things I can remember from that year. And even though I didn't have a name for it at the time, even though I probably couldn't have explained why it's stuck in my craw, I know now because I felt that way because I was seeing something for which the world was not made. I was seeing injustice, however small, however slight, however subtle, I was seeing injustice. That's what it was. But the world, the world has not been made for injustice, and you and I have not been made for injustice. It is a violent breach. It is a violent breach against the world as God made it to be, as God made it to flourish. But injustice is everywhere around us, and it has invaded our hearts. And that's why Amos comes at us so hard. And that's why we need to hear him. Justice and its close companion, righteousness, are at the heart of Amos preaching and teaching. Justice and righteousness, these two twin concepts, are at the heart of what Amos says. So I want to tell you what those words mean. In Scripture, justice is the word for legal equity. It is the word for the fair, impartial administration of the law. Justice is the word for the right use of power and the right use of authority. And here is what I think is amazing. Here is what I think is beautiful about Scripture in the particular way that Scripture talks about justice. The incredibly important concepts that are implied by the word justice, they rarely, rarely appear by themselves in Scripture. They are almost always accompanied by this other word, righteousness. Now I know that when we hear the word righteousness in our culture, people like us, in this place, in this time, we hear righteousness, and it has sanctimonious overtones to it. And that's too bad, because that is not what Scripture means when it uses that word. In Scripture, righteousness is the word for the relational application of justice, for the human flesh and blood application of justice. Righteousness is showing fidelity to the relational demands that justice obligates us to. It means being impartial in our relationships. It means standing up for those who are being oppressed. It means using what power or resources we have for the good of others, for the people who need it. 
And that's amazing because it means that justice isn't just a, a collection of concepts that are floating around somewhere that are kind of like a noble goal but not exactly attainable. That is not what justice is because righteousness is the flesh and blood of justice. We believe in justice and therefore we practice righteousness. And church, God has built this into the grain of the world. When we observe justice, when we practice righteousness, we flourish, and all of the human beings around us flourish in every way they were meant to flourish. It is what we have been made for. Psalm 89 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne of God. Psalm 33 says, God loves righteousness and justice. And so it should be no surprise to us at all that Psalm 106 says, Happy are the ones, blessed are the ones who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. It's because it's what we have been made for. It is what this world has been made for. And this is what makes Amos 5 so wildly jarring. Amos looks clear-eyed at God's people and he says, you have turned justice to wormwood and you have cast down righteousness to the earth. Wormwood was this plant with this bitter extract and too much of it could be poisonous. Amos is saying, God's people have taken the thing that God made them for, the thing that he loves, the thing that he made the world for. They have taken that thing and they have turned it into a poison that is killing people. Amos was a shepherd by trade. He was a fig farmer. He lived in the middle of the 8th century during what was an incredibly, incredibly prosperous time for the northern kingdom of Israel. He lived under the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was an incredibly shrewd military tactician. He was a shrewd politician, and under Jeroboam's reign, Israel saw prosperity. They saw their borders expand. They saw amazing things, things they hadn't seen since the time of the King Solomon. But instead of using that prosperity, instead of using that accumulated power for good, it was used to accumulate more wealth and to insulate the ruling classes from everyone else. The poor were not just neglected, They were systematically used by the powerful to acquire more wealth. In Amos chapter 8, Amos says that the the needy were trampled by the use of unjust weights. That's literally using unjust weights to cheat people in business. And it's a metaphor for cheating people whenever they could be cheated. In the chapter that we just read, Amos says you trample on the needy by taxing them so much that they go into debt. And then when they go into debt, this is what was happening. The people would then have to go into debt slavery for the rich. There was no relief for them in the courts. The courts, Amos says, are rife with bribes. The needy are turned aside at the courts. This external prosperity that the people were experiencing masked an internal rot that had tendrils in every part of the common life of God's people. The rot was political and judicial and economic and religious and interpersonal. 
But read Amos. Read Amos this afternoon, and you'll see he's not just interested in cataloging the corruption. He does plenty of that. But he is just as interested in telling the people what this means to God, what their actions mean to God. So in chapter 5, verse 6 that we read, Amos says, God is going to break out like a fire in your life. He's going to burn it down. In verse 11 of chapter 5, Amos says, you know these fancy stone houses that you've built because you've put the poor into slavery? You'll never live in them. These beautiful vineyards that you've planted with the money that you got by cheating the poor, you're never going to get a drop of wine. Not one drop of wine. Why? Why are these houses going to be unlived in? Why are their vineyards going to go unharvested? Because, Amos says, because you'll be dead. That's what Amos chapter 5 is. It is a funeral announcement. It is a funerary liturgy. It begins and ends with wailing and mourning and lamentation. I'm sorry, old Israel can't come to the phone right now. Why? Because he's dead. I take up over you in lamentation. Church, this would have been a grave shock to the people who heard this preaching. And if we're familiar with the story of God and his people, it should be a grave shock to us too. It's shocking because these are the people of the promise. These are our fathers and mothers in the faith. These are the ones that God promised to bless. These are the ones that he said over and over again to, I'm going to bless you and through you I'm going to bless the whole world. And over and over again, he said, when you are unfaithful, I'll be faithful. When you show infidelity, I will continue to show fidelity. That is what God has promised to them. And through them, he has promised to the whole world. That's his, his whole intention towards these people. He promised it. And now he's saying, you're going to be dead. As it relates to the stuff that Amos is talking about, justice and righteousness, that meant that his people weren't supposed to just get a passing grade in observing justice and doing righteousness. If they were going to truly reflect the goodness of God, the truth of who God actually is out into the world, they would have to observe justice and do righteousness fulsomely and consistently and perpetually. This is how Amos says it in verse 24, these famous words, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And those words have echoed through history and they have rightfully, rightfully hounded God's people from the moment Amos preached them. Dr. King used them in his I Have a Dream speech, and there is no reason for us to wonder why they communicate the beauty with which God expects his people to live in this world as a perpetual, perpetual stream of healing and sustaining justice and righteousness. A perpetual healing stream of sustaining justice and righteousness in a broken world that is absolutely dying for it. This was written into the identity of these people. It's written into our identity. Why is it written into our identity? Because it's who God is. 
Let me just read you a couple of the ways that God has expressed this to his people in Scripture, to these people who are hearing Amos preach these words. I just picked two books of the Old Testament and listen to what God says to his people. And when you hear it, please don't think, well, this is for other people somewhere else. Church is for us. God says, don't oppress the sojourner. Don't take a bribe. Don't pervert justice due to the poor. Do not kill the innocent. Do no injustice in court. Do not be partial in judgment. Listen to the small and the great alike. Don't mistreat widows. Don't mistreat the fatherless. When a stranger sojourns with you, you shall not do him wrong. Treat him as the native among you. Love him like you love yourself. I mean, God told his people to leave parts of their harvest, their hard-earned harvest behind for the poor, for the fatherless, for the widows. He told them to practice the year of the Sabbath, practice the year of Jubilee, so that people can get out of their debts and get their land back. Scripture is dripping with this. The Psalms talk about doing justice more than a hundred times. It is everywhere, church, because it's who God is. It is who he has called us to be. But God's people in Amos' day, they're failing at it miserably. And so Amos tells them, you're dead. Why? Why would he go to such a grave place, such a serious place? Why would he say this to the people of promise? I think it is to communicate the depth of the problem, just how deeply into them it goes. He wants them to know, he wants us to know, if we do not understand righteousness and justice, then we do not understand God, and we shouldn't pretend that we do. If we don't observe and practice justice and righteousness, then we do not know him. Amos wants us to wake up. I mean, everything might have looked okay. That's part of the problem. Everything looked okay to the outside observer. It's not like they had stopped worshiping, stopped going to church, right? But Amos wants them to know they're not fooling anyone. In verses 21 and 22 of chapter 5, Amos tells them, listen, God doesn't take any delight in your assemblies. He doesn't accept your sacrifices. He stopped listening to the noise of your songs. Jesus was echoing the heart of Amos in the words that we heard in our gospel lesson this morning. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Instead, Amos says, this, this is who you're supposed to be. Listen to this. This is who you're supposed to be. A beautiful outpost of justice in the broken world. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, a perpetual stream of healing, sustaining justice and righteousness. 
That's our vocation in this world. So let's talk for a couple minutes about what that means for people like us, because this call to fully and beautifully reflect God out into the world is our call. Nothing about that has changed. So how do you and I do this as it relates to observing justice and practicing righteousness in this world? Let me just suggest a few ways. I mean, first, if you're like me, your mind immediately, when you start thinking about this stuff, it ranges to how immense, enormous, and complicated these questions are in our world. And they are. The judicial questions, the economic questions, the political questions, the questions of medicine and healthcare and law enforcement. And I confess I don't know where to begin with most of them most of the time. And I know, though, that they are incredibly important questions. And here's what I want to say. There have to be, there should be Christians working in law and working in finance and working in politics and working in medicine that think through those hard, complicated questions and that work their hardest and that work their very best to make sure that public and corporate law and policy reflect the kingdom of God as much as they possibly can. This is what we have to do. Some of you are doing that, and we are behind you, and we pray for your success. Some of you may be working in those fields already, and but you haven't yet thought about, well, what does this mean for justice and righteousness? What does this mean for me as a Christian person? And to you, I just say, ask someone you trust to help you more, dive more deeply into those questions. Set aside time to work particularly on those things. Maybe volunteer for an organization that does these things that could mentor you and teach you and train you. How do I use the skill that I have? to observe justice and practice righteousness. And if you do that, we are behind you. We pray for your success. We celebrate you. But every one of us here should be thinking about what justice and righteousness look like on the street level, on the flesh and blood of our everyday lives. So the second thing that I want to suggest is to think about Jason and Davey and the kindergarten class of 1977. And by that, I mean attend to how you and I might defer to the great and powerful in order to get things done in our lives at the neglect of or the expense of the smaller and the powerless. Attend to that. How do we treat the cashier or the customer service rep, the retail worker, the server? Do we treat them well because we want something from them? Do we ignore them because in that moment we don't need anything from them? Who is invisible to us and why? Do we love them like we love ourselves? Do we treat them in the same way that we treat our boss, 
Do we treat them and act towards them in the same way that we act towards a potential business partner who we think could maybe make us a bunch of money? Do we, do we treat them the same way that we treat the professor or the mentor who needs to write us a recommendation? When we're at a party, do we look past the people that we don't think can give us what we need, that don't have the things we need, to try to see the people who might have what we need? Do we show partiality in our attention and in our care to the human beings around us? Church, these are matters of justice and righteousness in the everyday parts of our lives, and we are called to fidelity in the everyday parts of our lives. And lastly, I think we need to think about, I know that we need to think about what God wants people like you and I to do for the poor, to those who do not have resources. I mean, God takes this to the most incredibly specific street-level, red-blooded place with his people. He tells olive farmers, he tells olive farmers, when you harvest your olives, don't take them all off the tree. Don't go over them twice. Leave some for the poor and the widows and the sojourners. All right, so if you're an olive farmer, take note. But I'm pretty sure none of us are. The application is incredibly clear and specific. Do not use all of your resources and all of your money up for you and yours. Use some of it for the poor. Psalm 146 says that God executes justice for the oppressed and he gives food to the hungry. How does God do this? Well, any, any way he wants to. But you want to know one of the main ways that he does it? Through me and you. Think of the resources that you have, of the time and money that you have in particular, and figure out a way to give some of those away for the poor and for those who need I just mentioned serving with Breakthrough or serving with World Relief or giving to the Haiti Orphan Project here at Covenant. Those would be great places to start. They are not the only places by any stretch. There is probably a place to start on the block that you live on. If people like us look at our resources and we find at the end of the day that we have not cared for those in need with them, We have not attended to justice and righteousness. We simply have not. And we are called as God's people to do that. This list could be so much longer. It could include things like working at racial inequality, taking in foster children, supporting teenaged moms, caring for those with special needs, prison reform. All of these things touch on matters of justice and righteousness, and we should be honest and admit there is much, much, much to be done before we can say justice is rolling down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And church, if we're being honest, we will admit it is not just the enormity of the questions, it is not just the complicated questions that make this work hard. Please, let's be honest and just say it is our fallen hearts that make this hard. I fail at this stuff just about every day of my life. 
and maybe you can relate. And for people like us, there is hope. That, that's what the ending of Amos points to. Even actually in the funeral announcement, he points to hope. In, in chapter six, in verse six of chapter five, he actually says, seek the Lord and live. That's how you can get out of this. Seek the Lord and live. It was a pointer to after the funeral, if you let me put it like that, to the resurrection. The ending of Amos is inexplicably beautiful. And I mean that with every word. It makes no sense, but there is this change that says the funeral is not the end of the story. The days are coming, God says in those verses 13 through 15. The days are coming when I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people. And the empty houses, they're going to be lived in. And the beautiful vineyards are going to be so verdant that the mountains are going to drip with sweet wine. I mean, Amos doesn't know what he's talking about exactly, but we do. He's talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and for the world. He has taken the injustice. He has taken the unrighteousness of this world, including yours and mine. He has taken it on his back and he bears it to the cross and he breaks injustice there. And his resurrection and his ascension are the sure signs, church. They are the sure signs that he will one day establish justice and righteousness to the ends of the earth. It will fully happen, completely, perfectly, beautifully, perpetually. It will happen. And because that's true, that means people like you and me, we have all the energy that we need. We have all the power that we need. We have all of the motivation, all of the hope that we need. We have everything we need, church, because we are united to him in faith. We have everything that we need to work alongside him as he establishes justice and peace on earth like it is in heaven. It is part of our calling as his people, as his daughters and sons. It's what we've been made for. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we just ask that you would help us in whatever means you, you need to use to not be like those people that James talks about who look in the mirror and then walk away and forget. Help us to be not only hearers but doers. And do it, Father, not... Help us, to help us to do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. Do this work in us by your grace. Help us in every way, in every way, to not be motivated by guilt and to not be motivated by shame, but to be motivated by your beauty and your goodness and your love and your grace. You have changed us so that we can be who you have made us to be. Please do that. In Christ's name, amen.